0: Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sorkox. In this week's edition of Insight, as Oscar Wilde paraphrased, to have losses in one year may be regarded as misfortune. To have losses in two years looks like trouble for IAG. So is the answer to IAG's woes to poach Zurich's CEO or retreat from Asia? We answer those questions. And while we don't usually get the timing right to report on breaking news, we get the first run on the Aon Willis-Tower Watson merger eulogy. Hello, everyone. On the panel today are publisher Terry McMullen, Managing Editor John Deeks and Deputy Editor Wendy Pugh. So before we get on to the main stories from Monday's Bulletin, today we heard the merger of Aon Willis Towers Watson is definitely off. Good morning, John.
1: Morning. Could you tell us what's happened? I can. About 10pm last night, the news dropped in that Aon and Willis Towers Watson had mutually agreed to abandon the merger deal. With Aon paying about 1 billion US dollars in a termination fee. The deal would have created the world's biggest insurance broker. And it was first mooted back in March 2019 before it was swiftly retracted then. But in March last year, it was back on. And there's been a huge amount of work put in since then. However, it didn't look like US regulators, which had major competition concerns, could be convinced. So the companies say they've reached an impasse and have no option but to call the whole thing off.
0: Well, hello to you, Wendy. Um, Wendy, should we surprise that it did collapse?
2: Once the US Department of Justice launched legal action, it, it emerged as a possibility. People thought they'd be able to divest some more assets or come to some sort of negotiated arrangement and that there might have been a, a way forward, and um, particularly after the European regulator recently gave its um, preliminary approval. I mean, it was a big and complex deal, but um, I, I guess it is a bit surprising that they launched it and they they didn't really find a way to get it done.
0: And finally, good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. So, Terry, what are the ramifications of the collapse?
3: Well, I suppose we're going to see a fair bit of complexity happening, really. Uh, it, it's quite... Taken quite a long time to reach the point where they decided that the the regulators were all ganging up against them. I'm sure what finally convinced them was the fact that even the New Zealand regulator was tutting and fretting. ASIC and the ACCC seemed to understand that whatever they might think, their views weren't really all that important in the global scheme of things. So I think it's going to take a while to unwind and it'll be interesting to see how Marsh reacts too because... For everything I've read over the last six months, Marsh has been gearing up to take advantage of any turmoil that might result from a merger of this size. Walking away from a $30 billion merger really is, take it from me, as complicated as divorce. There's there's still going to be some turmoil as Aon and Willis do what Gwyneth Paltrow would call a conscious uncoupling. And I'd expect a year or two of distraction before Aon can say the whole thing is over and that they're traumatised. And how Willis will recover after telling its customers and going so far down the road to a merger where they are on is, is, is going to be interesting. So yeah, it'll it, it'll certainly uh, be something we'll be keeping an eye on. I bet Patrick Gallagher wouldn't be
0: happy with the uh, report either.
3: No, <laughs> there's, there's one. Yes.
0: Okay. Well, on to this week's Monday Bulletin stories. Um, IAG reported significant loss in its preliminary full year results. And while it's saying the underlying performance is still strong, there appear to be more than a few challenges facing the company. And possibly the wider industry. What are the key points in IAG's presentation, Wendy?
2: Um, Well, the the headline net loss of um, 427 million actually includes, you know, a number of one-off items, and, and mainly there's the provision for the business interruption claims. And we're not going to know the actual impact there until after the second test case. But it just highlights again that there's there's a lot riding on that. Um, but one of the um, business issues that came up was the impact of a sharp deterioration in average claim size in the commercial liability portfolio. So IAG points out that this is an issue that goes beyond them and particularly relates to uh, personal injury compensation. So, you know, that will mean higher pricing in that area. And that the company um, has resumed giving forward guidance, which is a good sign after the uh, uncertainties of the past year, and um, as part of that, it's, it's indicated it's increased its allowance for natural catastrophes after a couple of years where insurers have seen claims reaching higher than expected levels. So it was an interesting interesting result um, for some of those uh, bigger picture issues that touched on.
0: If you were Nick Hawkins, would you be having sleepless nights, Terry? Or is this more a
3: case of one-off factors causing temporary issues? Oh, look, if I were Nick Hawkins, I'd sleep soundly. Uh, <laughs> I think... You know, this group's going to come out of this and move forward. It's strong and it's big. It's significantly bigger than its competitors, which makes its losses look correspondingly more scary. But then its profits, when they happen, are more impressive. It registered a profit in the direct space, which is where IAG's greatest strength is, and that was despite all the natural disasters insurers have been paying out for. Jared Hill's going to swing across from Chubb in September to take over the intermediated insurance division, which is mainly CGU. And the IAG board is doubtless seeing the losses, losses that they're taking out of that part of the business as a problem. So good luck, Jared. Nick Hawkins wants a $250 million annual profit flowing out of the intermediated commercial business, which is probably not unreasonable. IAG isn't along and doing isn't alone, I should say, in doing it tough in the intermediated space at present. But the major insurers seem to be looking past that time and the number and scale of natural disasters over the next year will we'll tell if they've got themselves bulked up to meet any challenges. The, the challenges for the wider industry that might be indicated in IAG's result really come through this intermediated market thing. I really think that one of the common problems that, that they're, they're looking at, and it's worth noting and passing if I may, is that brokers have come through the past financial year in much better shape than they uh insurers thanks to sharply rising premiums they've worked hard to get their clients covered for sure but they haven't shared the insurers financial pain and i think that's something that uh company managers may be having difficulty sort of explaining in detail to their directors
0: well along with um jared hill um iog also announced the appointment of tim plant who's leaving his position at as general insurance ceo at zurich John, this was unexpected, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, so uh, Tim Plant will join IAG in the newly created role of Chief Insurance and Strategy Officer before the end of the year. Uh, He'll be responsible for group governance across underwriting, claims and customer experience, together with developing and driving IAG's strategy. He'll also be responsible for IAG's Innovation and Ventures Activities. It's a big job and certainly sounds like he's second in command behind CEO Mr. Hawkins. As for it being unexpected, yeah, I think that's fair. There's some surprise that Tim would leave the top general insurance role at Zurich. And we weren't aware IAG were looking to fill a position like this. Last year, it split its Australian operation in two. With Julie Batch appointed to head direct insurance and Jared Hill, as Terry said, coming from Chubb in September to lead the Intermediated Division. Craig Olson was also appointed group executive strategic project. So it seems Mr Hawkins decided he needed someone sitting between himself and these experienced executives.
0: Terry. Are they lining him up as the next CEO?
3: Well, it's a bit hard to tell, Andrew. <laughs> I guess Tim would be a, a handy spare wheel to have in the in the IAG boot. He's certainly being slotted in at the top end to add some organisational vigour to the overall insurance uh, operations. He'll be overseeing underwriting, claims, and customer experience, which is a very big deal and really is is where the rubber meets the road. And he also gets to run IAG's very interesting innovation and development functions, which are really important to its future. So it, it really is a big job for sure. But I guess people will see Tim as as some sort of possible successor. Time will tell. And what does this mean for Zurich, John?
1: Well, we've seen other insurers such as Allianz and Hollard taking great strides recently in terms of scale through major acquisitions but of course Zurich's general insurance operations in Australia are pretty much solely focused on the intermediated sector so they may not worry too much about the shifting personal lines landscape. Losing Mr Plant will clearly be a blow but um, Zurich reckons it has the expertise necessary with new country CEO Justin Delaney and Chief Underwriting Officer Sean Walker to continue to serve clients and broker partners with distinction.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about New Zealand. Wendy, the FMA has released a stinging report aimed at general insurers, hasn't it?
2: It has. It it wasn't a a great looking report. Um, Only two of 42 insurers met um, FMA expectations in their response to um, its conduct and culture review. So um, it it found that some insurers didn't see uh, conduct and culture as relevant to their organisation and that uh, product and um, uh, policyholder review processes uh, need to be improved this is in the context of these um, new conduct laws that are going to come into force for the insurance sector um, in early uh, 2023. And it's came to the conclusion that uh, insurers are uh, ill-prepared for those uh, new laws.
0: Can Kiwi insurers really be as bad as the FMA makes out when it comes to looking after their customers, Terry?
3: Oh, it's it's the, 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 the heat, I suppose. The FMA is certainly putting the heat on insurers and and. Even though it's happening in New Zealand, we should be aware that the industry over the Tasman is very much dominated by Australian insurers. Although it's also worth noting that IAG is one of the two insurers from the 42 across the, the broad world of general life and health who passed the FMA's exam with flying colours. For the rest of them, I think you just have to look on this as, as a hurry along to everyone to prepare for this new consumer friendly legislation. It sounds like they've been dragging the chain and making the sort of preliminary changes to their products and their approaches. So the regulators got the big stick out. Certainly, I don't think anybody's going to lose any sleep over that.
0: Here in Melbourne, we're limping out of lockdown 5.0 and Sydney will probably be under strict restrictions for a while yet. John, Can you run through how the latest lockdowns will be affecting the general insurance industry?
1: Yeah. So the first point to make is that insurers have been very clear that the measures they put in place last year to help customers suffering financial hardship brought on by COVID or lockdowns are very much still in place. And these include things like deferring premium payments, switching to monthly payments at no extra cost. And doing away with cancellation fees. Remember though that there was quite a debate last year about the wisdom of deferring payments. Insurance isn't like a mortgage that can be easily put on hold for a short time. It's an annual product that needs to be paid for and brokers previously expressed concern that putting off payments could leave small businesses in trouble further down the line. Thankfully, last year, not many took up that deferment option and not many cancelled their cover either. So insurers will be hoping there's enough government support around to ensure a similar result this time. The other issue the ICA has raised is around emergency repairs, particularly in Sydney, where there are pretty tight restrictions. Urgent repairs and make-safes can still be carried out, but there's no doubt the lockdown will be impacting the progress of many other claims, which will frustrate customers and add to issues already being caused by lack of trades or materials. In terms of staffing, the switch to home working will probably have been a lot easier this time around, but there's still the critical issue of mental health, with some staff bound to be feeling isolated. There are quite a few examples I've seen on social media of insurance companies sending little treats or messages of support to their staff to try to keep morale up. Uh, It's great to see, and I'm I'm sure everyone will really appreciate that kind of thing. Terry,
0: as a smug Melburnian, do you think the continued and repeated lockdowns present serious challenges to the industry and its people? Or can we take heart from the fact that we've been through this before?
3: Looking at this generally, what's happening now presents the same sort of challenges that every other type of business in Melbourne and Sydney is, is experiencing. Certainly the lockdown experiences have changed many ways we think about our working lives which you know isn't necessarily a bad thing in the long term but having been through 18 months of intermittent lockdowns and constantly changing regulations my heart goes out to our friends and colleagues in sydney no matter what caused this latest outbreak you know bad luck or bad management it's just hard yes i i think it's pretty damn good the way that we're seeing the industry actually Relating to each other and and trying to jolly each other along, it's uh, it's really quite touching. What comes out of all this, I've got no idea.
0: Well, finally, let's finish where we started with IAG. Wendy, it announced last week that it's continuing its retreat for Asia, didn't it?
2: Um, it did. Um, it had a, a joint venture um, in uh, Malaysia uh, that it entered more than ten years ago as part of an Asian expansion uh, strategy. Uh, but in the last couple of years, it's reversed that and sold interests in Indonesia and Thailand and, um, and, and India. And um, this Malaysian uh, asset was the last sizable interest it held in the region. Um, and now there's a deal being reached with um, Liberty that will allow IOG to exit. So it still has a couple of smaller investments in uh, China and uh, Vietnam, but... Um, as a result of this, now it's uh, you know it's pretty much entirely focused on Australia and New
0: Zealand. Terry, why do you think IAG is pulled back from Asia when we're told so often that Asia is where the growth
3: is going to be? IAG used to be dead keen on expanding into Asia because that was the logical place for it to keep growing, and and over 20 years or so, it built some lucrative niches in, in several Asian markets. When Peter Harmer took up the the top job at IAG at the end of 2015, I remember him talking up his ambition to move into China in a big way. Have a look at the IAG logo because it was designed specifically for a move into China. The China story changed within 24 hours after several institutional investors uh, had a chat with Harmer about the risks in the Asia market and China in particular. And ever since then, IAG has been selling off its Asian interests and focusing solely on the Australian and New Zealand markets, where the instos obviously see stability and certainty and less risk to their bottom line. Some of those Asian assets had enormous promise, you know, like the State Bank of India joint venture that IAG got into in 2008 that was gone too by the end of 2019 it's all a bit of a shame really
0: well that brings us to the end of this week's insight podcast by insurance news thank you once again to our panel terry McMullen, john deeks and wendy pew enjoy your week and thank you all for listening if you have any questions or comments please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au we value your input you can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.